Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, as an avid reader, I am constantly seeking to learn new things, to gain insight into the books and characters that fascinate me, to better appreciate the world around me. That's a good thing, right? Appreciate the world around you. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming learning service. Have you heard of this? The Great Courses Plus offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything under the sun, from history to science to psychology to literature, even cooking or learning a new language. We're talking unlimited access to thousands of topics presented by experts who are passionate about what they teach. Best of all, it's user-friendly. You can listen or watch from anywhere on your clock, on your schedule. How about that? Lately, I've been enjoying a course called Stories About Great Storytellers, which, if you're familiar with me, if you know a little bit about this podcast, makes a lot of sense. I like talking to storytellers. I like finding out what makes them tick. Lately, I've been listening to one about J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote one of the great myths of our collective childhood. I read it years ago. I sort of know who he is, but now I really know who he is. There is so much to discover on The Great Courses Plus. I know you're going to love it, and to help you get started, they are offering other people listeners a special limited-time offer, a full month of unlimited access to the entire library for free. For free. You can sign up through my special URL today to start enjoying your free month. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash otherppl. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. Get started with your free month. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Dig, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person. Just one Hi, everybody. How's it going? This is the Other People Podcast. I am Brad Listy here in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. I have uh, Brad Phillips on the show. He's got a new book out called Essays and Fictions, available from Tyrant Books. And I believe in nearly 600 episodes of this show, he's the first author I've ever talked to whose name is also Brad. I could be mistaken. I'm trying to think, but I think he's the first. So I had a great time with him. He showed up. He's a Canadian uh, artist. Like He's a very gifted visual artist and a very gifted writer. He's one of these polymaths. And uh, he showed up. I, I think I was sitting outside on my front porch. And he got out of his Uber, 
and uh, I want to say he was vaping. Like he had a cigarette. We talked. And then we went into my garage. And uh, on my coffee table was this book about this Indian woman named Deepama, who was like this Buddhist master. And he was immediately like, oh, you're reading about Deepama? And, and, you know, I guess if you're into Buddhism, she might be somebody you would know about. But it feels pretty obscure. But he was like, oh, yeah, I've read all that stuff. So we had a lot in common on that front. And, uh, you know, he was recommending books to me. Just a good guy. And, and we had an excellent wide-ranging conversation that I'm excited to share with you. I was reading, uh, you know, because Deepama is this woman who went through a lot. She lost two children in childbirth or close to it. Her husband died. She was a widow in India. She had one daughter. And uh, eventually, like she always sort of wanted to study Buddhism and then eventually went to this retreat. And within six days had uh, apparently reached the first stage of enlightenment. And at one point she was doing walking meditation. Like I'm reading about this and, you know, reading about her in this book. And at one point she's doing walking meditation and she looks down and realizes that there's like a dog biting her leg. And she hadn't even noticed because her concentration was so deep. And uh, I read that and I think about my own concentration, which is uh, by comparison, terrible. Like, how do you possibly concentrate that hard? You don't even realize a dog is biting you. And then she had to get like rabies shots. Here's another quote I highlighted. The moment of awakening, uh, I think this is Thich Nhat Hanh. The moment of awakening is marked by an outburst of laughter. And by the moment of awakening, I mean uh, like enlightenment. It's commonly, uh, it's a common experience for people who uh, go through this. They, you know, there's some laughter involved. The moment of awakening is marked by an outburst of laughter, but this is not the laughter of someone who suddenly acquires a great fortune. Neither is it the laughter of one who has won a great victory. It is rather the laughter of one who, after painfully searching for something for a very long time, finds it one morning in the pocket of his coat. Before I forget, uh, this episode of the Other People Podcast is also brought to you by the novel 37 by Peter Stenson, available now from Dezank Books. It is the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It got starred reviews across the board. It was one of Booklist's best horror books of 2018. It is about a cult. It is about a guy named Mason Hughes who's 18 years old and the last member of a cult called The Survivors. Do I need to go on? 37 by Peter Stenson, available now from Dezank Books, the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty 
And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So yeah, Brad Phillips uh, knows who Deepa Ma is. I, I don't know if we talk about her in our conversation on the show, but uh, very interesting guy, and I'm pleased to have the opportunity to present to you our conversation. Here he is, folks. This is Brad Phillips, and his book, One More Time, is called Essays and Fictions. I know, it's very weird. How do you feel about the name? Because I, I, I have problems. With I have it. real problems with the name Brad because I feel like it's a jock name. Right. And a date rapey name. Yeah. And I've always thought, who's going to take you seriously as an intellectual if your name's Brad? That's how I feel. That's how I feel, too. And do you, I mean, do you find that that is borne out in life? No, no. But neurotically, I still think, Brad, you sound like a jock asshole. Because, like, I'm working on a book right now, and I was even thinking, like, as recently as a few days ago, like, maybe I should just go by, like, DB Listy. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. Just yeah, flip yeah. my initials, just make it DB. Yeah. People can call me Brad if, if they know me or, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. But like that way, at least when somebody's looking at the book, they're not like, oh, douche. Right. This like, guy Brad's a douche. Yeah. yeah. What's your middle, what's the middle name? David? David. Yeah. I think because I have such a long career as an artist that if I were to flip my, change my name now, I would just fuck myself. Well, I kind of feel like that too, at least within the literary community, because I've done this show. I've always, I've published my first book under Brad. Yeah. Yeah. At, yeah. You know, at some point you just got to own it. And then Bradley's kind of infantilizing. Like a few people who know me well will call me Bradley. Is that your, is that your given name? Yeah. I'm just Brad. You're just Brad. <laughs> I didn't even get the Bradley. <laughs> oh, wow. You lucked out. <laughs> really? Well, when someone calls me Bradley, I feel like I'm nine. Oh, okay. You know, like, Hey, little Bradley. I feel like Bradley's like slightly better than Brad. It's not. It's not. It's not at all. Well, congratulations for um, like being a cool artist with the name Brad. I'm trying. Yeah. You were doing great, man. There's no other artist named Brad. I mean, there's not a lot of artists named Dwayne or Todd. Right. Right. Like these are the names. And I wonder sometimes if they're self fulfilling. That's what I, th that's what I wonder too. Yeah. Me too. Sometimes. Cause like sometimes I'll look at somebody's name and I'll be like, Oh, of course he's a fucking like great author. Yeah. Yeah. Cause his name's Edwin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 I know. But it's like, you have the coolest name ever. It's like, of course things are going to work out. Like I can get into that like mode of thinking. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. But we gotta, I gotta break it. I gotta break the spell. I mean, this is the name that I was given. It's not my fault. No, it's not your fault. It's not my fault either. My dad at this time, he was like, he was obsessed with the Old Testament, so he wanted to call me Zebediah, which would have been a good name. But my mom was like, absolutely not. You're a fucking lunatic. We're calling him Brad. It was a last-minute choice. Damn. But I know an artist named Jedediah Caesar. Uh, but like Zebediah, Habediah, is fucked up. You could have been Zeb, though. Zeb's Zeb. Zeb's kind of like uh, eccentric. and He also sounds like an industrial music DJ from Austria. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Just a nihilist yeah, with yeah, like some yeah. beats. Yeah. Uh, well, you're Canadian. I am. Born yeah. in... I was born in Toronto in 74. Um, I moved to Vancouver in late 2002 after I got divorced from my first wife. 
we were married for like three months and after we broke up we were like signing the thank you notes for our wedding gifts <laughs> but i didn't want to explain to a lot of my friends who came to the wedding like why i was leaving so i just irish exited the entire city what does that mean you just took off you yeah, ghosted just didn't say goodbye yeah. just left and a friend of mine had a place in vancouver um it was like the last cottage in the Lower East Side. I paid like 50 bucks for rent. It was a wood heated stove. I didn't like it there. And then I met a woman and then I took a walk five blocks to like the biggest open drug market in North America. And I was like, you either need to get the fuck out of here or stay here. And I decided to stay and it just slowly like the city just killed me. Vancouver did. Yeah. Because I, people are really unaware of, like Vancouver is always sold as like the best city on earth and there's these mountains and skiing, but there is like a four square block, huge open drug market that the cops don't fuck with. What's it called? Downtown East side, like Hastings in Maine. And there'd be people shooting up in their neck, like naked and the cops just leave it all alone. Just sort of like, I, I'm thinking of like Christiana and Copenhagen. It's a bit like that, but just way grimier and you know, just everybody robbing each other and you just put your hand out and somehow heroin lands in it. So, and my drug problem at the time was already not good. And going to Vancouver, I was like, maybe you can sort yourself out. And I was just like, I'm fucking trapped here right away. When I'm did you leaving. start with drugs? When I was like 16. And was it immediately like heroin was like the first thing. There's a first one. Yeah. That's an unusual story. Yeah, it was like before I tried cigarettes or alcohol. It How did was, somebody was just like, "Here, you want like was it?" Someone gave it to me. As you a smoke gift. it. Someone gave me like half a key to sell, and I was like, "Well, I should try it first. And I didn't sell it. <laughs> that was the end. That was the end. That's yeah. the story. That's how I ended up dropping out of high school. Um, I got offered like a full run basketball scholarship, and but my drug problem was already getting so crazy. I dropped out of high school. I didn't take the scholarship. Like, like I don't Jim have high Carroll. school diploma. Yeah, I know. It is kind of like no high school diploma. I went to art school for about four months and got kicked out because I spent my tuition on drugs. And Fuck. So wait, what? Uh, let's go back for a second. You're in, born in Canada. Your parents? My parents are both born in Toronto. Um, my mom's side, they all came from Scotland. My grandparents. Um, my dad's side, I don't really know too much about. Do so you have a relationship with him? No, not at all. There's only one person left, my dad's sister. Um, my grand, my grandparents died. My dad died in 96. So it's just this one woman. And I'm only really nice to her because she has the house, the big house. And me and my sister are the only people who would inherit. So we just try to maintain a civil relationship. With your mom? With my aunt, my oh, dad's sister. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, but, you know, she's a fucking, she's a weird person. But it's just, it's a beautiful old brick house in an expensive part of Toronto that's already been paid for. So. Yeah, it's good to have real estate. It in is. In these cities, too. It's like. I know. It's murder. Trying but to get, get a place to live. It is. It's impossible. And she seems like she won't die, too, which is the problem. <laughs> She'll live to be like 112. <laughs> yeah. Like my mom's, my grandmother's 100. Oh, man. And she's miserable. She is 100? She is 100, And yeah. she's, she's miserable. Yeah, because she's healthy, and, but she's bored. Like, she's completely bored out of her mind. Like, she has a bit of, like, heart problems, maybe, but she's mobile. Her brain is all together. And she's wanted, she's been suicidal for about 15 years. 
She asked me to put a pillow over her face three years ago while she was sleeping, <laughs> which I would have done. But I was like, I don't want to go to prison, Grandma. Merry, you know? Merry Christmas, Grandma. Yeah, here you go. <laughs> but when I go visit and she's staying with my parents, you know, everyone would say good night, see you in the morning, and she'd be like, Well, I hope you don't. Damn. Yeah. Because her husband died in like ninety one, she's lost two of her children. Oh man, she'll get two hundred pages into a book and realize she read it before. She's just fucking bored. It's too My, old. Yeah, well, that's the thing. My mom's mom, who was not suicidal, had nine children. Yeah, lived to be ninety one, which is a good. That's a good age. Yeah. Uh, but I do remember, like vaguely, my mom telling me that her mother had expressed to her, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of done. That's what my grandmother feels like. Like I did it. Old. I did it. Uh, like all my friends are dying. My husband's dead. Yeah. Yeah. I'm losing, you know, I don't know. I kind of get that. Yeah. I get it entirely. It's just too, it's too old. Like she's one of the few world war two vets, even alive in this suburb. She has like a French foreign legion of honor medal. Um, but she's just bored. She just says that I'm bored. She said, no one's meant to live this long. And I, you know, I agree. I don't know. They say we can live to be like 140. Right? I know it's too long. It's I don't want much. that. I don't want that at all. And then she tried, uh, cause she's in a veteran's home now. She, cause Canada has assisted suicide for psychiatric stuff now. So she told her doctor, she said, you know, I'm really ready to go. And the doctor said, well, you sound depressed and, for assisted suicide, you need to be of sound mind and body, which is like, you know, it's a weird loop. So they put her on antidepressants for two months and they asked her afterwards, how do you feel? And she's like, well, I still want to die. You know, she's like, I'm a hundred. I'm a hundred. <laughs> yeah. Like pay attention. I'm a hundred. You know, do you think it's possible to get to be like 120? Yeah. And to be not bored, not suicidal, not wanting to die, like at some sort of peace. I guess it depends on what you're, experiences and your family and maybe how you view the experience of being alive. There was a guy who did a, um, a TV show on all the stands like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan. And apparently in Kyrgyzstan, they found a graveyard where everybody lived to be like around 130, 135. Jesus. It was because they were all from this rural area. They all made their own food. Right. They'd never had processed food. They'd never, really been exposed to the things that we are here. Um, I think that's it. I think also in these like blue zones or whatever, where there's like high concentrations of centenarians. Yeah. I think a lot of it is gotta be social connectivity. Yeah, for sure. Because yeah. I, you know, in the absence of that, like I feel it and I'm in my forties. I'm yeah. like, do I have any friends? Yeah, like, me too. Yeah. And it's like, I, you know, I, I know I have my family. I have two kids and yeah. like, I cherish that, but it's like, Man, it gets harder as you get older, I think, at least for me, yeah. to maintain strong social bonds. It does, yeah with, yeah. with depth, you know, and real connectivity and reliability and consistency. Yeah. Like when I moved back to Toronto, the few friends I had were either still addicts or they were parents now. So I really just disconnected from them. So I, I literally don't see anyone in Toronto. Like I don't go out. Unless we go to Walmart, we go to a movie together. But when you, say, when you say we, it's you and your wife. Me and my wife, Christine. But I've never needed, like, I've always been kind of naturally reclusive. Me too. So I don't feel like way. I'm missing out. Like, I don't feel like I need the interaction. 
And like I talk to people like Giancarlo or Jordan mostly every day online. And That's Giancarlo enough. DiTrapano, yeah. publisher, and then Jordan uh, the Castro, editor. your editor. And a few other people. And that's enough to sustain me, really. Uh, like I don't go to art openings in Toronto. There's a whole thing is that I moved to Vancouver for 11 years and my art career did very well in this way where I bypassed Canada altogether. And so certain people... Canada is a real insecurity complex. So certain people were kind of bitter and resentful and they're like, Oh, you're too good to show in Canada where I was just like, I'm just going to go where the money is like a smart person. Right. Um, but then when I moved back to Toronto, I realized a lot of people didn't like me. Um, people knew my name, but had never seen me in real life. So now when I go out, if I do go out, it's this weird feeling where like, Oh, it must be special. Brad Phillips is here. Then it makes me feel really gross and uncomfortable. Like I'm not special in any way. Right. Um, and people recognize me. I don't recognize them. So I tend to just stay in. I watch YouTube, like top five, most haunted photographs, <laughs> top five, you know, strangest campsite murders. Yeah. I do that. No, it's a bit com- like what you were just saying about people. Like, you know, you're too good for Canada or like sort of resenting your success is like how hard it is for human beings to truly muster empathetic joy. It is. Yeah. 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 Like I'm really genuinely happy for you and your success. Yeah. Yeah. Like that bums me out. Um, you know, you, and you have to, you have to own it in yourself too. Cause I think there's part of human nature where you're like, ah, oh, you know, like mm. this person's doing something. I'm not doing it. I, I feel yeah. those twinges too, but I don't like them. <laughs> I don't like them either. And I really try to eradicate them. I was talking to our, my friends who organized this show. Like I had a psych, I had a, a psychiatrist in 2008 and he told me, you know, stop looking at art magazines, stop looking at art websites. And I took that advice. And the only real downfall, if it is one, is that I don't know anything about what's happening. Yeah. But I felt like art magazines and you're always comparing yourself to somebody else's career and just feeling like shit. And I was tired of it. And just in general, I think comparing yourself to other people is always a bad idea. It just it just makes me think of like social media, vacation photos. Yeah people like all that yeah gets yeah. to gets to feeling like uh, burdensome it does and unproductive it does i talked because i have like such a huge instagram following and then we were in new york like five different people recognized me and they were said i love your work and i was said to one guy what work do you mean and he said your instagram and and for me it's hard because i've been a working artist for like 20 years and then certain people like this art critic, Jerry Saltz, wrote about my Instagram. I've been interviewed about Instagram so many times. And my biggest fear is to die. And my tombstone is like, he had a great Instagram. Right. Because people see what you post, but they don't like, well, they won't look at your website. So they actually don't know what you do because it takes the work to click on a website. So people just associate me with Instagram and they see... Oh, you know, he has an interesting marriage. He does this, this, but they're not really sure what I do. And that's why I have all this conflict about Instagram. Well, yeah, it's like, it's like quick, cheap, easy, superficial surface level. Yeah. People don't really invest. No, but it's, it's kind of radically changed the art world in that I mostly make money through selling stuff on Instagram. 
and the gallery system is kind of falling apart because that's not so bad though it's not it need to be raised to the ground because instagram democratizes things so i've been able to do things in the past i would never do which is contact a gallery i like very much just call just write them or um i've been offered shows i've had a lot of things happen but i don't really want to be on it right and there's also when you have like thirty-five thousand followers you don't know who's who's inside the gate and looking at you so one of them when we were in new york one person that recognized me was a woman from christie's and she said oh come over we all love your work and i realized okay so people from christie's auction house are following me and i got a private tour of the auction um you don't know who's looking and they maybe don't ever like anything but they're just kind of watching you and I've talked to a few Just people. lurkers. Lurkers. And I've talked to my friend Daniel Arnold, who has a large Instagram, and Trevor Hernandez, who has this Instagram called Gang Culture, and about how, like, my account's private, but over time, the more followers you get, it starts to feel actually really creepy, instead of like, ooh, I'm doing good, I'm, you know, I don't, it starts to feel a bit creepy, because also, I don't know if it's the work I make, but people are very, like obsessed with me as a projection almost mm, yeah. you know and it's a kind of it's like fame it is so they they with the book too it's like they attach a lot of stuff and they have a lot of ideas about me and often they're just completely incorrect and i get the strangest messages like you saved my life or something or um well that's nice though <laughs> it's nice i guess if they're a good person and i save their life like there might be a piece of shit who should be gone you know <laughs> um yeah. I mean, I've talked about Instagram enough. I met my wife through Instagram, so that's not all bad. That's right? good. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, that's the thing. We have these conflicted, I, I think most of us have conflicted feelings about social media and the internet. And, yeah. you know, it's like these arguments and these conversations get circular and exhausting because yeah. you have them so much because it's such a, it's every day. It's every day. And it's also like, you know, these companies and these social media, once they, I think, get to a certain threshold, uh, of users yeah. or, per, you know, whatever you want to call them yeah. is, uh, is that you, you sort of have to, you do, yeah. you know, you want to do business as an artist today, especially if you want to have some feeling of autonomy and independence and connectivity yeah. to the people, yeah. where else are you going to go? You have to do it. Yeah. I mean, same thing with writers trying to plug a book. I mean, yeah. with the exception, I think of a few who either are just obstinate yeah. Or just don't give a fuck. Yeah. Or I think more often is the case. It's people who are selling enough books and making enough money that they don't need it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's fine. And that's yeah. a great place to be. Yeah. But I do kind of bristle when one of those people is like social media is a, a toxic you know, playground for Philistines. And it's like, well, Hey dude, you yeah, know, yeah. Like, you sold 4 million books last year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, one thing we talked about when someone was asking me about Instagram is like the only way I would quit Instagram if I was rich enough to quit. That's, I mean, yeah, it's a luxury Yeah, to yeah. not have to be in there. And also it's a conflict. Like I have a really addictive personality. So as much as I don't like it, I post a lot of stuff and then I delete it. I like the likes and I don't want it's dopamine. Yeah, it's dopamine. It's little little brief, you know, eruptions of dopamine. But i I don't want to. I don't want to have to think about Instagram. 
yeah, it's like how much headspace this is this taking up? It's fucked up. And then I will get bossed around in my own way by followers. Like I'll post a painting, and if it doesn't get enough likes, I'll delete it. Yeah, no, and like the entire. I'm the same way. Like if I put yeah. a tweet up, yeah, and I'm because that's the only one I do is Twitter, yeah. and I'm like, oh, this is funny. Yeah, that's yeah. usually what I'm trying to go for is yeah. like a one liner, and I'll yeah. put it up, and I'll be feeling good about it. Yeah, but if there's not that reciprocity, you delete it. I'm just like, well, I guess it's not any good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or yeah. maybe it was offensive. Yeah, yeah. Like maybe I said something that wasn't woke, or I just fucking piss yeah. somebody. You know, and I get I get into this whole like yeah. spiral, and I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> I know. And pre Instagram, I had you know. Every I was completely confident about everything I make, and I still am. But then sometimes I'll just be like, "Why don't they like it as much as I do?" Which usually means I'm doing something right anyway. You know, if it's kind of underliked, um, yeah. Because then people are like, "Well, I don't know how to react to that." Yeah, that's kind of where you want them to be. Right? Tw- I'm really bad at Twitter, and like, I only have like maybe 900 followers on Twitter, so it feels like a kind of safe space. But even there, I'll blow things like. I remember I posted something that was like, I've been watching a lot of YouTube documentaries on airliners and I keep seeing all these like huge skyscrapers in New York. You know, it was like kind of a nine 11 joke. And I realized Americans don't think that's funny. <laughs> Two people liked it. I deleted <laughs> too it. Too soon, dude. Too yeah. Soon. Too soon. Like, but I don't really believe it's too soon. I think that the, the closer between tragedy and comedy is like the perfect space. Like if you can do it right after. Well, it's like, you know, people laugh having like these crazy laughs at funerals. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah and yeah. I mean, crazy, like big. Yeah. 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 You know, uh, I've often said like some of the deepest peace I've ever felt and like ha- deepest peace slash happiness I've ever felt as a human being has been at funerals. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's some deep truth or like, Oh, I'm, like there's a sense of relief or I'm surrounded by people who are really, um, operating with their guards down. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, there's something lovely in that. There is. Yeah. And also with funerals, a lot of times I feel relieved for the person. Right. You know, I'm like, well, you got out of it. Well done. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Congratulations. Yeah. A little funeral jealousy. Um, yeah, but I've been to way too many funerals. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. I never, I sometimes g- tell myself that or i've seen a lot of like untimely death in my life yeah me too yeah going back through childhood yeah me and too like, and i'm i'm like uh, yeah but i mean what about somebody who is in like a really tough part of the world yeah i know where there's like famine and shit or yeah war yeah like i gotta take it down a notch because sometimes i can be like i have seen more than my fair share and it's too much and it's like I don't know. I, but I don't really buy into that. I mean, I think it's all relative to your experience. So if you're growing up in, you know, in Syria, your tolerance for pain or suffering is a certain amount. Here in the West, like my trauma or suffering definitely pales in comparison to like someone working in the diamond trade getting amputated. But for me, relative to what I know, I don't really make the distinction. Like I shouldn't complain because people are starving in Ethiopia or whatever, right. which they're not. Ethiopia is thriving, but, um, yeah, I don't know about that idea. Um, so maybe I'm justified. You are justified. I've had, I've had, yeah, I've completely. Yeah. You know, we all have our stuff. Exactly. And for us, it's as real as it would be for someone who, you know, lost their kid in a drone strike. Like, right. Obviously, objectively, that seems more tragic, but, my shit feels just as real to me. And, and it's like, there's this absurdity and probably fallacy and like 
uh, what is it like grading or like rating suffering mm-hmm. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? completely I remember as a kid my mom would i wouldn't finish my food and my mom would say you know you got to finish your meal there's kids starving in ethiopia and i was like well are you going to fedex it to them you know <laughs> this isn't going to help them you know that i just put some brussels sprouts in the garbage you know like they're not going over you're not going to send them over there mom you know it's okay yeah um and I just have enough of my own trauma and suffering that I also selfishly just don't really. Th- I can look at news footage and I feel like, you know, the Syrian like gas attacks or something. I feel like that's horrible. And I think that briefly. And then I go back to myself again. Do you feel like trauma or like the traumas that you've been through? And I don't know yeah. like the, the details, but it's like, yeah. Do you feel like they're like organizing principles? Yeah, yeah. In terms of like your own sense of identity, yeah, and the story you tell yourself about who you are, yeah, I do. I feel that same way. I've been reading a lot of like autobiography, autobiography study stuff, and there's this idea really that the idea of a self is so unstable and kind of inherently false. So the idea of who we think we are is really based on the narrative that we build about our lives, which is contingent on memory and memory is so unstable and prone to nostalgia so really what we have is an idea of a self not so much a self in this book i was reading they were well, talking, it's a book you wrote too i mean really plays to all that yeah but it, i was reading a book about uh people with alzheimer's and you know you'll say like if they forget the names of their kids and then you'll say she's not really herself today but in a way she's not herself because she doesn't know the story of her life anymore. So like, who is she now? She's not really the same person. Or when I think about who was I at 20, I had the same vessel or whatever, but everything has changed except maybe the residual effects of trauma. Hmm. But I don't feel like the same person per se. I can't even remember. I can't remember either. I mean, you know, like you have, you have the big memories or these, these things that you sort of hold on to and keep retelling yourself. Yeah. Well, this is when this happened and yeah. everything changed and yeah. when I was 20 yeah. or whatever it was. But then, yeah. you know, I mean, the day by day by day is just gone. Totally gone. Yeah. It's like a vapor. And uh, yeah. I think that I suppose who I am now contains all of the past iterations yeah <laughs> but yeah. it's 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 always changing like second to second it's changing it's this fluid yeah. thing and it's when you say it's unstable it's kind of like that it's a buddhist idea but yeah it feels um like irrespective of that it just feels like demonstrable yeah and, yeah, yeah. Well, there's no like you where is the self is, there, it, is it your body is it your skin is it your brain it's it's it, you know it's not even a thing it's just uh you know, when people say, you know, people can't change. The only thing that's is immutable is that everything is changing constantly. And then what's frustrating, like in relation to Buddhism, for example, is like intellectually, I can grasp this idea that the past is not real and the future is not real, but I'm still hung up in the past. And I, so I have this certain like philosophical awareness, but it just doesn't match up with my, the way that I'm try to create a story about my life i stay stuck in the past too much me too um which i don't want to do i told my therapist because she constantly talks about the inner child thing and i said like 
I don't want to constantly be mollifying this inner child. Like I want to just like slice its throat and curb stomp it and throw it in the <laughs> be garbage. Done with it. Yeah. Be done with it. Because why is, why am I at 45 being bossed around by a traumatized nine year old? You know, like what happened at nine? May I ask? Oh, I mean, my dad was in the hell's angels. Oh, my parents got divorced when I was nine and my dad was a, was a heroin addict and an alcoholic and probably a sociopath. So I saw a lot of violence and I had like a really early inappropriate exposure to sex. And I don't mean like pornography. I mean like seeing my dad have sex with prostitutes and like hanging out in brothels or going on dope deals. Um, seeing him like beat the shit out of people or like kneecap them with crowbars and this is all happening when i'm nine or ten jesus yeah so i feel like and when you have an addict for a parent too you sort of switch roles so i ended up parenting him and he committed suicide when i was 22 and all i felt was relieved and that's it and i felt guilty for a long time about that but i don't know you don't no yeah. No. And when you say relieved, relieved for yourself, relief for myself that he was gone from my life and also relief for him. I was going to say, yeah. So it was, it was dual. It was both. I mean, he was an unhappy, very, I mean, he was an addict. He was very unhappy and he was 50 and he just shot himself up with three times his tolerance of heroin and died and seems like a good way to go out and so I felt relief for him. I felt relief for me not having to deal with him. And if my grandmother were to die, I would feel the same. I feel relief for her, happy for her, you know, that she got out. Um, well, we're all going to get out eventually. We're all going to get out. It's the fact that I had a few like near death experiences in Vancouver, um, drug related. Yeah. And it was interesting because it takes away your fear. I mean, Buddhism helps, but, like the kind of fear of death thing just goes, it goes away. I had that in a psychedelic experience. Yeah. Yeah. Where I feel like, I don't know, it's so hard to language it, but it was like, I touched some realm or it touched me, Yeah, but it was just very deep peace. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Feeling of connectivity and oneness where I was like, it's okay. Yeah. That's how I feel too. And I don't know shit. Yeah. Like yeah. with this limited perspective that I have through this little vessel that yeah. I'm walking around in yeah. on a day to day basis yeah. is very limited completely. Cause you see how small it is and you see that there, are, you know, there's other dimensions out there. We can't access them. Like I'm so reticent to talk about it cause Tao is the one who kind of introduced DMT to me. I was always scared to do it. Um, you mean Tao Lin? Yeah. Okay. But I don't want to talk about it because I think, you know, I'm like, I feel like I'm always stepping on Tao's bit. But uh, so he, got, I did DMT. And then the last, I was in New York all of November and I did the most DMT I've ever done. And I just had a complete out of body experience where, you know, there's this kind of like fractally elf world people talk about. Self-dribbling basketballs. Yeah, but I just shot straight through it, and I just felt like I was hanging on for dear life on this ride where I was just fucking leaving my body and this planet altogether. And when I came down, it was so reassuring because I realized there's just so much more. Yeah. But I also don't really buy into this thing of, like, DMT is, like, a healing 
trauma resolving drug anymore because I've done it enough and I realize it's just, it's a fun experience. I, well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing too, is that, you know, it, it's not nothing. No, it's not. No, <laughs> but it's not everything. It's not everything. And either. I feel like, uh, that psychedelic experiences, uh, they're remarkable yeah, yeah, and worth having for sure. You know, with, you know, you want to be respectful of what you're dealing with. They're powerful. Yeah. 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 Um, but ultimately I think I am left with like, you know, because I'm uh, sort of Buddhist and on that particular path, like there's no shortcut. No, there's not. Ultimately it's like the daily grind Yeah, and sitting on the cushion and yeah, exactly. Trying to stay sane and doing the work, doing the work. It's work. Yeah. So DMT is kind of a shortcut. Like, so when we were in New York, you know, is the most kind of like, profound experience i had but two days later my wife and i still got into a little argument right you know it didn't fix me make me calmer but the experience in itself each time i do it i find it reassuring it just more what it does is reinforce what i know from buddhism right really that's exactly how it was for me yeah yeah i was like oh and there were all this there were like these uh, deep feelings of recognition yeah yeah I guess maybe in the experience they were articulated in memory. They weren't super well articulated yeah, and yeah, defined, but yeah. it was like, uh huh. Yeah. I, I, I felt it. But then you come back and just like you said, like, you know, two days later, I'm sort of annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like 20 minutes later, I just walked to the store, bought cigarettes and you know, went back on Instagram. <laughs> um, yeah. But as in, I mean, there's definitely benefits. I'm just wary now of this idea of like you can heal your trauma you can get rid of your ptsd you can go off your psych meds you know i can't you know like you learn from the experiences but i don't know if it was tao who talked about it in trip but there's a story about terence mckenna going i think to korea and smoking up this zen master with dmt and after he came down he said yeah it was all right i've seen stuff way more interesting than not meditating. Well, there's a story about Chogim Trungpa. Yeah. 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 Who like died of uh, cirrhosis. Yeah. I know. I <laughs> you know, know. He was yeah. like the, the, the crazy Zen master who like drank like a fish and yeah, did every yeah. drug, you know, everything like that. But, um, there's a story I want to say, and again, I'm pulling from my memory where somebody back in the, I don't know, seventies, eighties or whatever in yeah. Boulder or something. I was like, here, you know, like, check this out, this LSD. And he's like, let me see it. Yeah. And he just like, it was like liquid acid. And he like drank the whole, yeah, like yeah. an ungodly dose that yeah, would like yeah. have like floored an elephant. Yeah. Yeah. But they, the guy said he was like completely unfazed. Yeah. 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 Like he showed yeah. no sign of even having taken anything. Yeah, exactly. So I don't know if that's apocryphal, but like part of me is like, if somebody really is, um, a master meditator with like yeah. those powers of concentration. Yeah. Which I think there are human beings. So do I yeah. who get that good at it. Yeah. Uh, maybe they are, uh, impervious to, you know, the effects of psychedelic drugs, or maybe there are, I, I sort of like, you know, as somebody who I feel like a novice, yeah. <laughs> despite the fact that I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. Uh, I do feel like I've experienced some hint like just like a direction that where it's like, oh, I bet if you really got good at this, you could get into a mind state where you're touching that same kind Absolutely. of realm. Absolutely. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Like I was in Vancouver, I would go to the Zen center every day. So I was raised, I was raised with Zen Buddhism. There's no Zen community in Toronto. So I go to a Tibetan temple and it's anathema to me in terms of like Buddhist 
ideology, like there's tons of imagery and I just try to look for the similarities. But I guess in Zen, the idea is that like, do not seek enlightenment. Like don't, don't even fucking bother because they have this idea of like Satori, which is that instead you have brief glimpses or moments of enlightenment. If you're lucky, you know, once a year and that's it. And to be, because the idea, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive because you know, the, the, the fourfold path, the first thing it says, you know, is that suffering is caused by craving. So if you're meditating, craving enlightenment, yeah, that's like, you're already missing the point, right. you know, there's crazy stories about, uh, about Trungpa that I, I read his wife's book about him. They got together when she was 15. He opened a, he opened a center in Scotland and they got married when she was 16. And so her story was the day after the marriage, they wake up in bed together. He gets a phone call, says, I got married. And I guess the guy said something and then he turned to her and he's like, what's your name again? You know, like he didn't even remember her name, you know? Why? Because it just didn't matter. I guess he just didn't associate her with her name or he could have just been hung over. Oh, I was going to say, was he wasted? <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> and there's stories of him like coming from, coming from Tibet through China people feeding him their shoe leather to keep him going, you know, and who knows, who knows, who knows, but you know, he maybe more than any, uh, you know, popular Buddhist teacher in the West yeah. embodies, uh, contradiction. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> you know, where it's like, cause there's always this vision of the Buddhist teacher where they're very austere yeah. and yeah. clean living yeah. and pure and calm. And yeah. that's the traditional understanding. But this is a guy who it's a rock was star. more of a wild card. Yeah. But yet, you know, by many, like, um, by many accounts, people who, uh, I tend to trust they were just like, he was the real deal. Yeah. He was the real deal. So it leaves yeah. you with this like question where you're like, wow, like, yeah. How did he do it all? <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, when he was younger, before he left to, to go to Tibet, he, he meditated for a month in Milarepa's cave. And then he came out and said, someone get a pen. And he, he transcribed 400,000 words of what were like lost transmissions that he discovered while meditating like earlier people's meditative experiences and came to him in this cave. And he basically added to the, to the theological writing or the scripture, like 400,000 more words that he just discovered in a cave sitting just, there. Like, but discovered, you mean discovered inside in his head. head. And oh it was just God. given to him as a narrative and he got out and it was written all down and that shit. I don't know. You can't make it up. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know, like we talk about, uh, access to different realms and yeah. just like, you know what it is? It's just the mind for lack of a better word is way more powerful and mysterious than we, we think. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I it's, mean, it's big. It's far too big. You know, I know I'm using very little of it, you know, for the most part, not intentionally. And I guess that's something that Buddhism will, can help you to understand if you're willing to understand it or engage with it is that there's a lot more you can do. So what an interesting childhood you had. You have a hell's angels <laughs> addict dad yeah. who is taking you through experiences that no nine year old yeah, should yeah. ever have. Yeah. Um, 
But then you say you were also raised as a Zen Buddhist. Buddhist. Yeah. By, yeah. Now, how do, who is the originator of that? My grandma, because she, because she discovered it during the war, but she was very, you know, it's like Fight Club. You don't talk about it, really. Wait, this is the grandma who's 100? Yeah, yeah. And she, and she discovered it during the war, so she was... In Korea for a while as a nurse. As a nurse, okay. Um, and then she met my grandfather actually at Dunkirk, but she was very discreet about it and because my family that side of the family was very like traditionally scottish unitarian right and she just also believed what i similarly believe and like probably shouldn't be talking about which is that you just don't need to talk about it right and so my dad was absent my mom was absent so my grandmother mostly raised me where was your mom um after just working five jobs you know because my dad didn't pay child support okay um so my grandmother would just introduced me to reading um taught me how to meditate and at the same age like at 12 like she bought me crime and punishment for my birthday you know she's just always kind of like trying to educate me more and more and then i guess i was i was a believer and then around 2005 i got a lot more serious a believer in buddhism yeah but i started to really really practice meditation a lot and when, then when what prompted the the, to, the shift in 2005 i was really unhappy like suicidally unhappy and like i have a i have that a mood that tends to be it <laughs> it tends to do it right yeah and i have like a i have a mood disorder and i just found that it helped me to slow everything down um and then the longer like when you sit you know at first there's like a lot of pain mm-hmm. in your body and then you break through that pain. And once you can do that, a lot of interesting things happen in your mind. But at a Zen temple, you know, it's like you meditate facing the wall. No one gives you instructions on how to meditate. There's no talking. If you're slumping, you get hit on the shoulder. The or- only ornamentation is maybe a flower, you know, and then you have tea quietly and you leave. But at Tibetan temple, because it was Catholicized to some extent, it was antithetical to what I had been taught, which is that there was tons of ornaments, flowers, statues of the Buddha. And I, I was a bit snobby and judgmental about it. But then I realized it's because Buddhism is so passive. They'll let it, anything be absorbed into it. So I just realized, you know, everyone here has the same goal. The decor doesn't matter too much. I have a friend who is talking to David Lynch. I know that sounds sort of like name droppy. Yeah, that's fine. But it's, I'm in L.A. yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it's not, she's not like friends with him, but they were like talking meditation. Like that yeah. was the common ground for like the small talk. Yeah. And he was like, well, what kind do you do? But I don't like him because it's TM. But I mean, but yeah, but then he was like, well, if you're not doing TM, you're really not meditating. That's bullshit. And I'm just like, oh, come on. Yeah, I know. That disappoints me to hear that. You know, maybe I, I think I have the story straight. I don't see how she could have possibly No, no, it's true. It. He just, he's kind of like the head of TM to some extent. And it's just, to me, like, it's like a scheme. It's that you go to TM, they give you your own mantra, which is essentially nonsense. It's like a two-syllable nonsense word. Yeah, and they charge you a lot of money. And anybody, like, if someone asked me today, how do I meditate? I would teach them. I would tell them what I know, because it's not something that you're supposed to keep secret and monetize. So TM just really seems like a scam to me, and a sales pitch, and inauthentic, and... You know, there's a reason that Buddhism has been around for so fucking long. Like, it doesn't need improvement. David Lynch isn't going to tell you TM's better than the Pali scripture and, like, going back, like, far before Christ, you know? Like, it's just, 
I don't know. I just, I really don't like David Lynch. So. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I, mean, I feel like he's so, I mean, you know, the films are interesting. I feel like he's sort of like hero of the art world yeah. uh, or the art film world or for people who aspire to make weird art, but also achieve some commercial success. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there, there are very few of those. So I think people like hang on to people like David Lynch. Yeah. Uh, plus he has great hair, which is like my entire fixation with him is essentially that I want his hair. Right. The voice and the hair are great. <laughs> yeah. The, the new iteration of Twin Peaks that was on, I, I pitched writing about it to a few people and no one, no one would publish it because he's such a kind of sacred figure but if you look at that i don't know if you watched the remake i didn't i didn't watch it it's really misogynistic really racist and then if you go back further in his work you look at the women characters and they're basically always punished for being sexual and they're constantly objectified and if you look at like say the original twin peaks there's you know the dummy secretary you know the the cute older woman who owns the diner and all these sexy teenage girls. And that's basically what they function for. And Laura Palmer, you know, being sexualized as a dead girl. And I just think he's a complete sexist. Hmm. I he heard, did. I heard, I've heard stories like that. Like his, like people see him at Jumbo's clown room and yeah, I don't fucking know. You well, know, in the, in the last iteration too, there was a, you remember Hawk, the native detective, I know. I, I don't know. I it was from the it. original series. So there was like a native, a native, a native uh, cop, and in the last Twin Peaks, there was this whole thing where he was told you have to use your your native your native juju to figure out a mystery, you know. And it was like, why can't he just be a native cop? You know, like why does he have to also bring his cultural shit into the scenario to solve a crime? Right. So in that way, I feel like he's racist. I definitely think he's a sexist. By the way, peyote, yeah, excellent. I love when you're, it. Tra- when you're trying to find like fight crime. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you done peyote? Yeah, yeah. And you lo- you say you genuinely love it. Genuinely, yeah. What's the difference? I mean, does it have its? I mean, I know these things all have their sort of like unique flavor. They all have their kind of minor variations, like mescaline too. It's it's all like if you kind of if you use like mushrooms as the base from which to judge everything else. Peyote is more, it lasts longer. There's more hallucinations, mescaline as well. Um, like I would never do LSD now ever. It's too long. It's too long and it, it feels really speedy. It feels like a drug to me, you know, when I do it. Yeah. Eating mushrooms doesn't. Smoking DMT looks a lot like smoking heroin. It looks like you're doing a drug, but speed, like acid, I've done some in the last few years and it just feels stepped on and like it's got Ritalin in it. It's too speedy. I don't want to be high for 10 hours. No, I just don't No, Me neither. No. You don't need to be, you don't need to be. No, that's what I like. I'm just like, okay, I got it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Before, I mean, it could like, you know, you were uh, comparing it to being like on a, you know, there's something like blasting off, you know, like, yeah. it really is like, yeah. Uh, as close as you can get to describing it. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, there is this feeling of like being on, like strapped to a rocket ship. Like yeah, five hours is enough. It's enough yeah. to, for the rocket ship ride. Cause I was strapped to the rocket ship for, you know, a good 15 minutes and it was insane. And that's about as much as I needed with the DMT. Yeah. Are you doing anything? Like, are you just like eyes closed, like lying on your back? Are you like sitting on it? Like, what do you physically look like when you're doing it? (laughs) It's really strange. So I lie on my back 
and you, you know, you, like so this guy came to New, this the first guy who wrote about this book in New York. Um, I trusted him for some reason, and I had DMT in New York, so I can get the first two hits in me, but I can't get a third or fourth one. So I was like, "Well, come to my apartment. We'll do the interview, but I need you to help me smoke DMT first. <laughs> so he got me really high on DMT, and my eyes are closed. I didn't know he was in the room. And I took off my clothes. Um, so you have your faculties enough together that you can be like walking around your room, but you're in the DMT experience? No, I stay lying down. Okay. I was yeah. going to say, all right, all right. But that time I got up a bit early and I was still hallucinating quite a bit. Um, so he was trying to, he was recording me talking about the book. And then I kind of just started looking at the curtain <laughs> for about 10 minutes. Where can people read this interview? It's coming out in this magazine called Office. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just, that's enough of an experience for me. And also it's like with, with acid or the same as with weed, I'm like, oh Christ, now I have to be high, you know, for quite a while. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this shit, you know, <laughs> like, but the experience for me has been like, my wife has done it. Um, I know a lot of people that have done it. They tend to be quiet, but I get this thing where I'm really aware of my breathing and I take deep, deep breaths and I just, I feel like, fuck, breathing is amazing. Yeah. So then I start to like vocalize things. I've got to start to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you, what do you call it? Uh, is it echolalia? What do you, I, I don't know where like sound takes on color and you that's know. what it's like for me. Yeah. yeah. So the last time is when I got the highest, by the way, I could be totally botching that word. That's but, fine. I yeah. botched most every word. <laughs> Um, but the last time my wife was in the room and she's a bit nervous because what happens to me is that my teeth start to chatter a lot and I make this kind of like snaky sound. Right. So I was on this like rider. I'm like strapped in, but I would start to like kind of hum or what I thought it sounded in my head, like orchestral singing, like beautiful. Right. But I just associated the sound with color and I felt like. I would hum and I'd probably just be going like this, hmm, but it would sound like every single person on the planet was humming the same note at the same time. So for me, it has like this weird musical effect on me where I need to start making sounds. Yeah. And my wife was a bit freaked out because she's like, you really looked fucked up. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> yeah. I cannot imagine like being sober, watching somebody go through Cause like yeah. the contents of the psychedelic experience when you're in it are so profound and profoundly odd yeah yeah and all-encompassing yeah. and like you're going through so much even though physically you're just like lying lying there on a, yeah. on a yeah. couch yeah. Or a yeah. Yeah. that if you're sitting there watching somebody like i can't even you know i i, I would honestly like i i would like to see video i videotaped myself once uh-huh um and I couldn't look at it after. Because you're just like, oh, this is just too weird. Well, I saw myself like my friend Jens came from New York. And so I video the first part was interesting, which is I videotaped. He's giving me the th- three hits and there's more in the bowl. So he's like, do you want this? Is and three I, hits the what you need? Usually, yeah. Okay. But there was four hits. There was another hit left. So... He, I could hear him say, do you want this? And I said, put the pipe around my face. 
And then I opened my eyes and I started laughing hysterically because I, I said, I don't see you. I don't know where you are. Put the pipe in the hole in my face. And then he did that. And then I watched myself slowly just bend over into like a weird child's pose. Okay. And then just fell back and like stretched my arms out. I'm just touching my heart and feeling my breathing. But this thing happens to me. I don't know if it happens to other people where my teeth start to chatter a lot. And but, there's fluctuations in body temperature that go along with it. Yeah, you get cold. You get cold, then you get, get warm, hot. and then you get clammy. And yeah, it's like, that's, yeah. I think that's part of the deal. But I think what freaked Christine out is that it felt like as long as my teeth were chattering, I was able to stay on this kind of ride, and I would stop, and then I would the ride would stop. So I wanted my teeth to keep chattering. So I was leaning my head back, doing anything to keep my teeth chattering. And Christine, I mean, she thought she'd never seen anything like it. But she's like, but I didn't want to fuck your trip up. And also, if someone had touched me, I would have lost it. Like yeah, a human yeah. being touching me. <laughs> but then when I came down, I just started fucking sobbing like a baby. Okay. This and, is familiar to me. Because yeah. I did the same thing. But it wasn't sad no, or anything. Exactly. Yeah, right? It wasn't yeah. like... Ever, I tell people that and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, no. It no, was, it was great. It was awesome. It was amazing. It felt beautiful. So I was sobbing like a baby and she let me cry for a while. Then she sat in the bed. And then I put my head on her chest. And the minute my ear heard her heartbeat, I just stopped crying. And I felt great. Wow. And it was just the connectivity to her. But I think part of the crying was also, oh, I'm back now. I'm back on earth now. I'm back in this body now. I think, yeah. But I think for me, it was like I touched. It was like the that touching of that extra dimension, yeah. that deep peace, yeah. but also like deep feeling for the suffering of the world. Yeah, definitely. And like crying tears for the suffering of the world, but like in a way that was like cleansing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I hear you saying all of this. Yeah. I reference my own experience. Yeah. These aren't drugs in the classic no, sense. No, not at all. You know, I mean, no. like, and I, I also like, I know people sort of like eye roll when you're like the plant teacher. Right. Yeah. But there is something, you know, properly used medicinal happening. For sure. I kind of in the middle ground between like the Terrence McKenna idea of like, this is the world was made by mushrooms or, but there's, it's not a drug, you know, like, cause I don't do DMT and then Jones for more. No. You know, it's like mushrooms. It's like the opposite. It's like, I need a break. I need a break from DMT. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cause that time out for like six months. Before, yeah, for sure. You know, but, um, I mean, I tried to get some here. Yeah. You know, my friend ordered me uh, these things called Yopo beans, which is like hardly any research on. But I guess it's kind of like ayahuasca. And I've avoided ayahuasca because I don't want to be high for 10 hours. Like DMT is great. It's 20 minutes. But uh, like my wife did ayahuasca in London and she had a really bad experience because people had like a dog around and some woman was complaining about her life. <laughs> So this thing, Yopo beans, is, um, is from Brazil and Haiti. So I ordered a bunch from the invisible internet, and uh, there's very little research about it. But it comes in a bean, you cook it, the shell pops off, you cook the bean, you grind it into a paste, you cut it, then you grind it into powder, blow it up your nose. You get nauseous, which I don't want to do. You get a headache, which I don't want to do. Apparently, at first, it's unpleasant. 
And then it's like about a 30, 40 minute ayahuasca trip. So it was kind of like my runner up. I would have rather had DMT, but did it, but it worked. I don't know. I'm going to get it oh, when I go oh, okay. home. Yeah. Um, and I my wife's away for February and March and I'm not sure how comfortable I feel doing it without someone there. I don't have any friends to be like, Hey, come over and help me do this really basically unknown new obscure psychedelic <laughs> seed, you know, like yeah, that's a tough ask is like, Hey, is. do you want to be like a, my minder? Yeah. 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 <laughs> want to watch my, watch me chatter my teeth. And, but this guy who did it, who watched me in New York, he was fantastic about it. And he was really nonjudgmental. And I didn't know he was in the room, you know, even when I opened my eyes, I didn't see him. Yeah. That's the, the yeah. Like you probably once you're in it, it's like the the rest of the world can go take a hike. It, well, it takes the hike. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't. And did you talk? You didn't talk? No. No, no desire to no, talk? No, 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 no. Not at all. And then he asked me immediately, what was it like after? And I was like, language is not going to help you here, man. Like, And I ended up just going through, I just gave him like a really crash course in Buddhism for some reason afterwards. Oh yeah. There's so much like crossover between those two experiences. Maybe it's because like we're both going into it primed yeah exactly that's already the context that i was sort of like operating in anyway yeah i mean if you have the mindset of the awareness already that things like death or not constructs but like everything is essentially a construct and if you go into it knowing that like i believe in reincarnation and so i don't really worry about dying and i come to it with the idea that like in terms of like non-duality there's no good or bad everything's intention which is directly related to buddhism you know and yeah you write about that or i read it was i reading it in an interview maybe in an interview i keep blathering on about it by accident no but it's good (laughs) it's good though because i think that there's like i mean um that's a buddhist teaching is that intention is everything it is everything yeah when it comes to karma like the intention with which we act yeah for sure and it's also like for some reason bringing to mind seinfeld (laughs) because <laughs> it's like that type of humor. Uh, and I think we all go through this as humans where like you have best intentions, but you just like fuck something you up fuck or it up. Yeah. You offend somebody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's comforting to think like, well, look, my heart was in the right place. Like I really was intending to like make a joke or I yeah. was really intending to help you. Yeah. 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 But it yeah. turned out that like I was unhelpful or annoying. Completely. Or, yeah. You know, and a lot of Buddhism is about that. It's just like, is behavior helpful or unhelpful? Avoid the unhelpful behavior. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's a wild ride, but I think the two are definitely interrelated and I ran out of my memory. Well, I think that, uh, (laughs) I think that like, you know, if you're looking at like the, the integration of Buddhism into the West Mm -hmm. and the way that it's kind of woven itself into the culture, I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty popular now. It's popular in terms of like this whole mindfulness thing. Yeah. But I mean, that's what I'm saying. It's like, it's becoming, you can see it rising up and it's not that long in the grand scheme. It goes back to the sixties. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I was reading like an interview or something with Ram Dass. Yeah. Who was, you know, there's like that wave of, of Westerners who were like Peace Corps volunteers over in Asia or whatever, whatever it was. Yeah. Yeah. They went over there early. They came back and started to disseminate. They brought teachers over. Yeah. Yeah. But he was just like asked about psychedelics and he was like, they were the bridge. Yeah. 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 And I sort of get that. I can see that too. Yeah. I mean, Naropa University started around then and uh, Shinryu Suzuki moved to Berkeley and started a Zen center there. 
And he had Chagyam Trungpa come and visit the Zen center, and he was drunk. And all the students were saying to Suzuki, like, how can this guy be a, how can he be a Buddhist, you know, enlightened Buddhist Buddha, like a little bodhisattva? And Suzuki said, like, you know, this guy drinks, who cares? That's how he gets it, you know, like, don't judge him. You know, there's just like, Shunryu Suzuki's supposed to be a vegetarian. He went out to lunch with someone who was interviewing him. He got a, like a veggie burger. The other guy had like a double cheeseburger. And he's like, well, let me try that. You know, and it's like, the, it's a sense of guidelines. But you don't need to adhere to them. You know, it's not necessarily like a dogmatic religion at all. No, that's what I like about it. That's what I like about it, too. <laughs> like, you know, some people would probably tell me it's like someone told me I'm like California sober because I'll smoke weed, you know, or I'll do DMT. Whereas in like NA, they'd be like, yeah, oh, you fucked up, you relapsed. But to me, it's just not the same at all. Well, and I think that like ultimately what it comes down to is there's just not one way. No, there's not. You no. know, we're all going through life. We yeah. all have our little methods. We all have different neurochemistries. Yeah. We all have different life circumstances yeah. and emotional, yeah. um, what do you call formulations or, um, you know, we're all wired differently. We are. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it just doesn't make any sense to me that there would be this like one narrow path that you've got to be on. Otherwise, I mean, that's, no. that's dogma. Yeah, and I tried like twelve step programs for years and for me they just don't work. You know, it's like they're as much as they say they're not Christian, it's obviously Christian. This set of steps, you know, twelve steps, I never finish the steps. Um for me, like it's part of I'm really fortunate to be alive and for the most part I'm very happy with my life. So why do I want to spend an hour and a half in an NA meeting? hearing about how everybody's suffering, going over the readings again, when I could be home with my wife or walking through the park and in, enjoying the fact that I'm sober instead of going and rehashing it like every day at a meeting. To yeah. me, it just seemed useless. I mean, yeah, if you need a tune-up or like some community. Yeah, yeah. I, I will go on occasion because I'm bored and for social just to see other people. And I'm, you know, I'm far more comfortable around addicts than I am around other people. So I'll go for that, but... The program itself didn't do anything for me. Well, let's talk about visual art and mm. literature. All right. Um, because, you know, you sort of said 16 is when you started using. Yeah. You dropped out. You, you were a good basketball player. Yes. Yeah, what college good. did you get the, uh, the uh, University of Toronto? They were going to put you on a scholarship. Yeah. What position yeah. did you play? Uh, point guard, actually. Yeah. Well, how tall are you? You're like six, six, two almost. All right. Yeah. That's a good point guard size. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so you are like a college dropout, high school, high school dropout, dropout. And I got into college as a high school dropout, dropped out of there. Uh, yeah, school's just not for me. But then the art, but the art was there from what age? Oh, like really early on, um, like since I was a child, always drawing and stuff. So for me, like I'm self-taught, like I never took a painting class or anything like that. I'm just a huge fan of intuition and just trust my intuition. But I taught myself how to paint. Were there artists you were like, who were the artists you were looking to? No one, Matisse, <laughs> maybe like, yeah, it sometimes makes me feel pretentious when people are like, who are your influences? And I say, nobody, or like, maybe like I'm far more influenced by film or by writing in terms of making artwork than I am by looking at contemporary art at all. So who are, I mean, I, don't, I, I hate to make people like enumerate cause I know it usually escapes you, but like are yeah. there filmmakers or writers that were, yeah, like Brian De Palma is like a huge influence on me. Um, which films are your favorites? 
oh god like phantom of the paradise and then body double and um blowout high mom um not scarface not untouchables the kind of weirder shit you know um they just had came out with a documentary about him i just watched it last night oh you did yeah, yeah i watched it like i felt i always fall asleep like watching netflix or yeah, whatever yeah, but yeah. I, was, I was eagerly watching because i'm a fan of De Palma too i love De Palma. tell me why i like him so much because he's campy there's a weird camp like to his stuff and because he there's a sense of constant unease somehow yeah and also he he uses all the tropes in a very self-conscious way like i always see images that i think of De Palma, which is like a pearl necklace a leather glove a handgun and a mirror i think that's De Palma. like there's just something about it it's like very eerie and i'm also really in the documentary it talked about when he was a kid he would um follow his dad who was cheating on his mom and photograph him and then when I look at his films, there's so much about surveillance. Right. And I'm really into surveillance and stuff. So, but that was a big part of it. Surveillance as a... Like, I photograph everything. I document everything I do. Like, By the way, for those of you listening, uh, Brad is holding a video camera right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. I like the idea of... I had this fantasy once of, like, outsourcing a suicide where I would ask somebody i'd pay somebody in advance and say like during the month of december i wanted you to take me out with a sniper rifle i don't want to know when i don't want to know where <laughs> i just want to get tapped once in the head once in the heart you know that's it yeah and i've often like wanted to follow people and have done it sometimes on the subway like see an interesting person and see what stop they get off and then like kind of see where they go. And I mean, that's like, I, I get where someone would be like, well, that's creepy, but that's also yeah. kind of interesting. It's like investigative. Yeah. I'm not trying to like be predatory. I'm not trying to get in anyone's pants. I'm not trying to rob them. I'm just like, this is the narrative of what my day would have become. What's this person doing now? Who's that French artist? Uh, she's a female who would do these experiential things where she would like lie in bed with people on the Eiffel tower. Sophie Calais. Sophie Calais. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She would kind of do stuff like that where didn't she find like a diary and then she tried to like find the person. It was like a discarded diary in Paris. And, yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 Like, that kind of work is like fascinating to me. The one thing of hers that I really like that's similar is she got a job as a maid in a hotel. Right. And then would go through people's luggage and photograph it all. Right. And then showed the photographs. <laughs> that's right up your alley, right? Yeah. And, like, and I love that. Yeah. yeah. I just like the kind of the space between private and public, there's a little gap. And inside of that space, there's increasingly so much. little. Yeah, yeah. But that is the interesting part, right? Yeah, and I like that part. Like because the, I feel like that's where people really are. Non-curated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The non-curated self. Well, so you, uh, you're self-taught. Yeah. You're starting to paint, I'm imagining, as like a teenager, 20s. Yeah. But then you said by the time you're 28, you were having some success. I started having success, yeah, like very early, like 2001, 2002, and like quite like shocking success. Like what does that mean? What does that look like? Um, I, I showed my, I waited till I, like artists show young now. I waited till I was 27 to show my work. And I was in a group show and a really great collector bought all my work. And then suddenly I was offered a solo show in a good gallery in New York. And then I was offered a solo show at a good gallery in Switzerland. Is, like, I'm so fascinated by the art world and, and like oh, the machinations the most... of it. And like one of these good collectors 
changes your life. Changes your life. Yeah. Cause then they talk. There's, yeah. And there's really not that many of them who have this kind of money and who, are, not. In, who are into it. Yeah. So I feel like there's like this trading that must go on where they're buying from each other. And but it's also problematic because collectors tend to collect more with their ears. You know, there's not a lot of there's a really great documentary called Meet the Vogels about these collectors, Herb and Dorothy Vogel. He worked at the post office. She worked at the library. They used her money to pay for their rent and bills, and all of his money went into buying really difficult, like minimalist art from the 70s. And they were just self-educated, and they ended up having the best collection of minimalist conceptual artwork in the 70s. They donated it all to the Barbican, and they had this very small apartment, and it took five Mack trucks to get everything out. Wow. And they were like taping drawings to their ceiling and covering it with paper so it wouldn't get damaged by the sun. But collectors like that are very, very, very rare. They seem pure. Very much. And like yeah. fetishists. Like, yeah, definitely. And definitely. like obsessive. You yeah. Know? Whereas I think like sometimes it's like a social thing and like. It is. It's a status thing. It is. Like, oh, I have a Basquiat in my living room. And it's I just kind like, of think that the art is the most disgusting business. Like, it's corrupt and gross. There's a documentary on Netflix called Blurred Lines, The Business of Art. I think I watched it. It's Who's the guy? It's like the old, the old guy. He's like 90 almost, and he's like German. There's a few, I don't remember exactly. Okay. But they talked about... There's a woman who's like basically outed everyone, and she said, you know, the art world is a giant Rico, you know, like that Rico indictment for like the mob and stuff. Yeah. She's like, it's just a huge racketeering thing, like... People Everybody's in cahoots and... with each other. Certain dealers will connect to push one artist. I learned there was a thing called chandelier bidding at auctions, where if they put up a painting and the, the reserve is a hundred thousand bucks and nobody bids, um, the auctioneer will go like this to the chandelier, and all people will think, "Oh, someone bid, so we better start bidding." But no one's bid. He just raised his hand and looked at the chandelier. It's like social pressure. Yeah, but like I really wish. I hope that nobody who works with me in art hears this, but I would really like to stop because I've, I don't want to, I've never had the desire for like fame and I've had like brief experiences with it and it just leaves me with a really empty feeling and I feel like I've done everything with art that I wanted to do and... Do you get paid? I mean, if you have these big galleries? Yeah, sometimes it's feast or famine, you know, like I made maybe 80 grand last year maybe this year i made 16 or something you know so it's really unreliable but i just if i don't feel like i'm challenging myself i get really bored so that's how i feel now and to some extent i kind of resent making my work because i've been making a certain kind of work for a long time and people expect that work what's that work like you know fairly realistic figurative paintings and i kind of feel like i'm making brad phillips paintings not they're like copies almost, you know, it's like, I'm giving you what you expect of me. This is why De Niro made meet the parents, right? You right. got you got to break out. <laughs> yeah, you do. You do. But at my age, it's like, if you experiment, people aren't, aren't comfortable with that. Right. They like, they like you the way they like they you. like you the way you are. Yeah. And I just feel completely done with it. And I also like the idea just in terms of like, okay, I had a lot of success with this can I try in one lifetime to also have success with writing? Like, so like, I do yeah, two like, things? How did you get in? Like you started to have an inkling that you wanted to write. Yeah. I always wanted to write. My grandmother always told me you're a far better writer than an artist. <laughs> 
And in past interviews I would, with art, I would always talk about how art for me was a way to write. Um, like, do you know the photographer William Eggleston? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, not intimately. But. Yeah, but when he first showed those color prints at MoMA, he was the first person to show color prints. And um, the curator said, you know, what are you trying to do with this work? And he said, I, I'm trying to write a novel in pictures. So I always thought like my paintings are very narrative or cinematic in a way. And I felt like I was trying to use painting to write and I secretly wrote, but wasn't that good. And then when I moved back to Toronto, I started writing art criticism and art reviews for magazines. And I'm really comfortable with writing essays. But what happened was that I really wanted to use drugs again. And my sponsor back in BC, he said, write about doing it instead of doing it. Write about it like you're actually doing it. Hmm. So I did that. And then I just thought, this is okay. And that came out as a novella. And then that's how I met Giancarlo, is that Lauren Stein. That was called Suicidal Realism. Realism. Yeah. And Lauren Stein read it and was like, gave it like critics' picks. And I was just really stunned. And Giancarlo was like, this is really brilliant. And I was like, this is all new to me. I feel very nervous about it. And he's like, well, let's do a book. And then I started writing more and I realized maybe you're good at this too, you know, and I enjoy it. Like part of making, part of making paintings that are based on photographs is that I know exactly how it's going to look at the end. So it's just execution. But with writing, I write really quickly and I feel like it's with my friends who make abstract paintings. It's like, it's fun in the process. You don't know where it's going. And then later you kind of create more structure to it. So yeah. Like how does it look for you? Are you writing every day? Yeah. 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 And you have like a, do you have like a ritual like most writers I talk to, or is it kind of any time that feels good? It's hard for me to get into the space. So usually I'll do like, I used to play professional Scrabble, like like tournament Scrabble too. You contain multitudes. Yeah. So <laughs> what I'll do is like, I'll watch a bunch of shitty YouTube videos. Yeah. Like, I mean, like, the worst garbage, like, top three listed, like, haunted campfires or, like, unsolved mysteries. I'll watch those for a while. I'll start to play Scrabble on this Romanian website where all of the, like, kind of, like, professional Scrabble players play. <laughs> the elite. Yeah, I'll play there for a while. And then I'll just start writing. And some days I'll write for half an hour. And some days I'll write for, like, six hours. I type really fast. My because of this mood disorder, like my brain goes so quickly. What is the mood disorder? Borderline personality disorder. Okay. Um, how do you, can you treat that? Yeah, you can. There's drugs. There's yeah. Like, I'm taking a really good mood stabilizer, which fixed me up a lot. What? And, and cause I did like, you talk about like bipolar. I sort of get that. You talk about like manic depression or depression. Yeah. I get that. But yeah. like borderline personality disorder, like what are the symptoms? Like, how does it manifest? It's, it's like bipolar plus, I guess. And there's a lot of dissociation. So I will reach a certain level of stress and then suddenly I'll be at a subway stop far away from my house and not know how I got there. Um, but there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score by this guy, Basil Vanderkoek that came out in the 80s. And the therapist I see now, the common thinking is that for one, all, all of us have trauma because being born is traumatic. Right. You know, like in Korea, they say that the sound of a baby, the sound of a baby's first cry means save me. 
which makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> yeah. So you're coming out of this like beautiful aquatic womb-like space into like the clatter and fluorescence of life. So immediately everybody's traumatized. And so this book, The Body Keeps a Score, and most new psychotherapy, like I was told, like I had PTSD, I have PTSD, I had bipolar disorder, I had obsessive compulsive personality disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, um, impulse control disorder, all these things. But the idea is that none of these things are really, they all fit into this umbrella of borderline personality disorder. But even that, what they're trying to get into the DSM is something just called developmental trauma disorder. So people who legitimately have PTSD tend to be like who are in car accidents or in war. But if you are experiencing trauma for basically most of your childhood up until early adulthood, um, you you present as being bipolar, you present as having an anxiety disorder. And I do have an anxiety disorder and I do have mania. I rarely get depressed. Um, but the idea is that borderline personality disorder is kind of just a catch-all. And it's saying all of these things are symptomatic of this. You don't have eight different diagnoses. You have this. And it contains them all. And it contains them all. And they're all symptomatic. Yeah. But, now, but really, it's just developmental trauma disorder. Well, because like, I think about things that I went through as a kid. Yeah. And I had a pretty happy childhood mm -hmm. like um, in general, yeah. you know, in the grand scheme of things. And, uh, but yeah, there were some tough... There's some tough things. And I'm like, I never saw a therapist. Yeah. Did I had, did I have, like, I've been asking myself like recently, Yeah. did I have like untreated PTSD? Yeah. Yeah. Or is that like too strong of a word? It, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. like I think of PTSD. I think of like people who were like in a war and like really went through some crazy shit up close yeah. and personal, but like, I'm sort of wondering like, was I in like, how do you even characterize it? What's the name for what I went through? That's the thing is that a lot of it really is nameless and language isn't sufficient. It's called life. <laughs> it's just called life. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I know people who have PTSD from, from car accidents and from long-term trauma. Like I will hear, um, I, well, if there's firecrackers, I just start crying hmm. because I heard gunshots when I was a kid a lot. Yeah. Um, I have a buddy whose sister died of leukemia when he was like nine or 10 years old yeah, or maybe he was a little older. She was like nine or 10. Yeah. And he told me that for years, if he went into a hospital, he would faint. Yeah. 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 Just yeah. immediately. Just like, yeah. or like some point he would walk in, be in the hallway, visiting some friend or family member, just pass out. Yeah. 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 I think it, I mean, I think it's like anything. It's like you have, there's degrees on the spectrum. Mm. It's like how now they think autism isn't, there's a spectrum, you know? And I think most things are, are spectral in that way. So for me, like borderline personality disorder, it makes more sense. You can be on the low end. You can be the constantly suicidal, suicidal ideating, you know, far end of it. Well, it's like we were talking about earlier with there's not one narrow path. No, there's like, not. Like we're all snowflakes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. you're like maybe we have some commonality in terms of our diagnosis, but really it's each case. is everyone's too. You can't, yeah. you can't give a diagnosis to say this applies to everybody because it just doesn't, you know. So essays and fictions. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Which is it? <laughs> Both? It's fiction. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because 
that was Giancarlo's like really great idea to change the title, but I don't like to give it away. You know, like there's 11 stories. I would say two of them are pretty much entirely autobiography. And then there's some that contain elements of bi- autobiography. Like there's a story towards the end where I talk about this fugue state that happened to me when I was 22 where I kind of lost two months of time, that's real. But then later in the story, I go to Italy and so I see Giancarlo and I murder somebody. And toward, because that's towards the end of the book, a lot of people have told me, oh, I thought everything was true until I realized Brad wouldn't murder someone. You know, so, <laughs> Or would he? <laughs> or would he, right? But I've never been to Giancarlo's place. But I just really, really... It's kind of cheesy and academic, but I'm just kind of an adherent of like post-structuralist ideas, which is just, it's, my intentions as a writer are irrelevant as soon as someone else has the book and however they view it to me is correct. And all writing is fiction. And all writing is fiction. Because memory, like as you were, we were talking about earlier, it's, yeah. like, it's so unreliable and yeah. fragmented. Like, how could you possibly be like, this is... Yeah. Like, I guess there have to be these distinctions for the purposes of like shelving books or whatever. Shelving books, yeah. But But on the back, it says fiction, you know, and people keep referring to them as essays or saying that each of them read as they're written in an essay format, which I don't see. I see some of them as being very like classically short story structured. Um, But I just wish people would just forget about the author. But as much as like the death of the author thing, it's a lofty proposal. And to me, intellectually, it makes sense. From my experience, people are unable to separate me from the book. And if you name the protagonist, Brad Phillips, it's more difficult for people. And if you have a weird kind of cult of personality following, it's the same thing. So there was a part of me that was interested in manipulating people about what was true and what was not. But now I find it more irritating because a woman interviewed me in the first person. And she said, so um, when this happened to you, and I said, no, when this happened to the character, Brad Phillips, right. Know, I'm not what I write, you know, I'm not the person who writes it. I'm not, you know, it's just, these are stories, you know, and what's real and what's not really doesn't matter. And everything is fiction outside of maybe technical manuals or Ikea instructions. Like I, to me, all writing is fiction. I agree completely. Yeah. Yeah. But I do, you know, I say that and I also respond well to autofiction mm-hmm. or at least the feeling when I'm reading of somebody grappling with themselves and with mm-hmm. their experiences and mm-hmm. it's not too terribly layered yeah. or maybe if there's, that's the illusion. It doesn't yeah. feel layered. And so then it works for me, even though it might actually be really layered, but yeah, yeah, it's yeah. just, I don't know. I, I, that's just my personal taste, but, um, I don't know, are you the same way or different? yeah, I am. And I think a lot of what's problematic and why people like, I want to do a book of the fucking uh, DMs I got on Instagram are insane from people like, oh, this book saved my life or, you know, and because I'm writing about mental health and addiction, um, I think people see like a bit of a self-help aspect or like people are like, you're telling my story. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm telling a story. But you kind of are. But I pe- kind of am. People too. don't have the vocabulary or the, t- or the time or the inclination or the talent or whatever it is yeah. to, to put this stuff down. So I think it comes as a powerful relief to people Yeah, yeah. to have yeah. their own experience reflected back at them. Yeah, but I just don't want them to see me. There's a lot of projecting. 
And it's like, you know, Gay's interpretation, Susan Sontag, it's like 1962, and she's saying, you know, it's a grave error to to associate the author with the subject, you know? And for me, it's also about, like, the polysemic aspects. Like, I never did... I did as little press releases as I could for art shows because I thought, you know, I make this painting, it means a certain thing to me. The minute I do a press release, I'm starting to manipulate people or direct or limit their experience to read the work. So I would like to just put the work out there. As soon as it's out of my hands, what I feel about it's irrelevant. And then if people say this painting is good, then it is good. If they say it's bad, then it is bad. It's whatever they want. It's whatever they see. And so that's what I like about writing an art is that it is polysemic and it's open to as many interpretations as possible. And I think that it's like the birth of the reader thing or everybody's reaction is correct. And my intentions are irrelevant once it's out there. But the problem is that I can't keep, I'm having trouble getting drawn back into the intention must be true. This must be a true story, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, I'm done. It's done. It's yours. Take it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just never, ever write a book again where the character is named Brad, you know, never. <laughs> it's bad enough to actually be named Brad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I can't help but notice that, uh, Anthony Bourdain blurbed your book right there on the cover. Yeah. Did you know him? Yeah. A little bit. Um, he, I'm friends with Azio Argento and I've known her for a while and I wrote her once on Instagram and I was like, oh, I'm broke girl you know anybody who's got money who wants to buy art? And she's like, well, I'm dating Anthony Bourdain. And I don't, like, I don't know who he was. I didn't know he had, like, the CNN show. I just knew he wrote a book about restaurants. I didn't know he was, like, this huge person in culture. Huge. So he gave me, like, 30 grand for a bunch of paintings. And me and Christine went to New York once, and we had lunch with him. And it was like having lunch with Michael Jackson, I couldn't believe it. Like we went to the back of this restaurant and kind of like a few like wait staff kind of kept us protected. People would still keep approaching him. What restaurant? Uh, it was this Jewish place in, on the Lower East side. It was really good, but yeah, they sat him at the back, even going in, everyone was stopping him. Yeah. And then he, he was like, let's duck out the back for a cigarette. And someone like pulled over in their Jeep Cherokee, like across two lanes and yeah. got ran out to get his autograph. How did he handle it? He was very uncomfortable. Yeah. Like to me, he seemed really, really uncomfortable. And he said, the only place I can go in New York is this Irish bar where nobody knows me or gives a shit. But it was, I'd never seen that level of fame and it seemed horrible. Yeah. Right. Just horrible. Yeah. And then what happened is that he read the book long before most people and he really liked it, but he committed suicide basically when the galley was going to print and the blurb was on the front and I was like, fuck, it's going to look a bit exploitative or something like it's maybe the last public thing he wrote is that blurb. And, um, I felt really, I felt really uncomfortable about it. And I talked to some people about it and they were said, you know, it's just more like honoring Anthony or something, which I don't grasp either. Yeah, it was a genuine expression. He gave you the blurb. I mean, yeah, he read the book and had this thought about it. Like, yeah, yeah, that thought, that thought, it's okay if people find out about it. It's fine, but I also had this fear because of what was happening with Asia and stuff. Was that 
oh shit, Anthony killed himself because maybe there's a bunch of Me Too shit coming out about Anthony. And I was like, there's already kind of transgressive writing in the book about sex. And are there, is this blurb printed now? And 50 women are going to come out and say Anthony Bourdain was like a predatory chef. As it turns out, he's a sweetheart. He's a sweetheart. He's like an angel. Because yeah. I, I was a fan before he died. Yeah. I sort of, I would sort of uh, razz him a little bit, like on Twitter, because he was always like, "I'm eating the guts of a." He was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, it's like, yeah. dude, take it down a notch. We yeah, get, yeah, yeah. we get it. You like meat, you know." Mm. But it was always in good humor, and uh, you know, I think maybe I didn't have a full enough appreciation for his intellect and yeah. warmth. I don't know. I read a lot about him after he died because, like, whenever somebody takes their own life, it really hits me hard. Yeah. yeah. Uh, one of the traumas of my past yeah. that I think was sort of formative was losing a friend to suicide. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and especially him, he just had this, you know, seemingly great life yeah. and traveling yeah. the world and doing yeah. this, you know, this good work. And uh, I think, you know, when something like that happens, I'm always prone to like doing a lot of like uh, reading after the fact. And it's, yeah. it's kind of a mourning process. Yeah. yeah. But it was just like, it accentuated the scale of the loss because you're like, oh, this is a good human being. Yeah, yeah. And somebody who was trying hard to do things the right way and treat people well. Yeah, and yeah. There was just story after story. I mean, like your story of him being like, oh, this guy needs some art. He's so generous. 30 grand. So know? generous to me. And he would have bought, and he bought more after that. And I just said, you know, my wife and I are broke and struggling and as he re and I really get along. And so he has a painting of my wife he did have a painting of my wife blowing her nose right across from his bed. He saw that every morning and I liked that. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know too much about him. And then afterwards it was like Kennedy dying. It was like this global mourning for him. Yeah. He was everybody's like travel buddy. And, I didn't, I didn't and, know. And dinner guest or whatever, yeah. you know? And I didn't like, that's the thing too. Like I didn't maybe have a full enough appreciation of his larger project. Yeah. For me, it was like, I just watched his show when I was falling asleep because yeah. it was like, ah, oh, it's nice to be on the vacations, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, and yeah. he was like good company, yeah, you know? Yeah, like, yeah, I yeah. think that's how a lot of people felt. But I think that there was a larger project that he was up to that he sort of like subtly wove in yeah. where he was helping bridge cultures yeah, and for sure. yeah, teaching yeah. people how to live a little bit. You yeah, know? for sure. He uh, was a very, very gentle, kind person. and my, But my mother, who constantly Googles me, sends me Google alerts. I'm like, please don't send me Google alerts. Like it's never good news. Yeah. Um, I made her promise not to read this book because I talk about like my mom having sex in the book or stuff, you know? And right. Uh, she doesn't want to hear about basically anything in the book. Um, but it keeps getting press and she's, and I'm just like, just fucking promise. You're not going to read she's it. She's going to read it then. She won't. You don't think so? She'll die if she reads it. Um, but she said the craziest thing to me, which is that I, I saw her and went to visit my grandmother the day after Anthony committed suicide and she knew about the blurb and she said, do you think that reading your book made Anthony kill himself? And then she's like, do you think other people will kill themselves once your book's out? I'm like, mom, no, like and Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, mom. <laughs> and I'm already like, it's already a little bit nerve wracking to put a book out into the yeah. world. Like, I don't need to carry this weight. Too. No, like God, no, it's not going to create like mass, um, like a suicide epidemic, mom. Like, yeah, he was a depressed person. You know, there's like the the book's pretty funny in lots of places. Yeah. You know, and so it was very awkward, but I was happy. Um, I was happy that a lot of women have been supportive of it. Because there is, you know, kind of like the writing about sex is 
still like transgressive, even though it's to me it's normal. I like, but I like how open you are about like, or at least the character Brad Phillips yeah. is about writing about sex. And, yeah, yeah. You know, just the, I think the very normal thought process that someone goes through. I've certainly gone through it. Yeah. Where it's like I feel weird, and yeah. how do you be real about it? And you know, yeah. But for me, it's like I don't know. With painting, I was always thinking oh, I'm just a realist painter, and with writing, you know sex is part of my life and my sex life is maybe different than most people's, but to me How it's so? normal. Or just like just the shit that we're I'm into. Yeah. Um, but I've always been that way. So to me it's normal, but to other people, like Christine said, you know, there's a part about this woman who I knew who taught high school and would go masturbate like squatting on the toilet against like the cold fixtures of the toilet. And to me that was like, I don't know. I've just always known perverts. And Christine was like, that's insane. Like no one's ever written about something like that. Like it's really sexy and bizarre. Well, no, my friend is a sex therapist and she was like, you know, she, we didn't get in too deep into the weeds. Cause there's like, she honored patient uh, yeah, yeah. client confidentiality, but she's like, you got to realize what I'm seeing. Yeah. Like yeah. people are like fucking shoes. Yeah. Yeah like, yeah. like that's what they like. They do. Yeah. I just want to fuck a shoe. Yeah. And yeah. to me, I'm like, what? You yeah. Know, but yeah. there's, there's all sorts of different. I'm really non-judgmental about anybody's sexual interest as long as it's consensual and no one gets hurt. And as long as it's not children, you know, right. Other than that. And inside of like some of those stories, it can get dark, but I don't think people realize that this is what's normal for some people. And there's also an aspect of like, like with the work I've made with my wife, like artwork where there's this shaming of women's sexual agency, like people can't envision like a woman who's a feminist also being a masochist or something. And so what happens is you, as a woman, the women I've known is that it makes them feel ashamed and invisible. Like they have no agency over their sexual lives when in fact they do. It's just sexually I'm this way out in the world. I'm a confident feminist. Like, and I'm not, not, it's not like you're not confident and feminist as a masochist, but like, it's just, it's bizarre, but women have been really supportive. And I was really happy. I read this woman, Erica Garza's book um, called getting off one woman's journey, journey through sex and porn addiction. And I interviewed her and she blurbed the book and it was interesting because I'm writing about sex addiction I'd never heard a woman's story about sex addiction, but they're basically the same. Yeah. We were doing the same things. There was a guy in rehab who was a sex addict. He talked about, he was a, he was a long haul truck driver and he used to go to hotels, get a Ziploc bag, fill it with mayonnaise, put it between the bed and the box spring and fuck it. And I was like, dude, you're a, you're a gnarly sex addict, you know? <laughs> but at the same time, I was like... I, like I, I'm opposed to that just on the grounds that I think mayonnaise is disgusting. Mayonnaise like, is can disgusting. Can we use a different condiment, please? Yeah, exactly. Like relish or something. Yeah. Well, relish is gnarly, but... Um, <laughs> it's messy, too. It's like, it is messy. Yeah. But it's just like, I'm not one to judge anybody. Like Me neither. I mean, you know, I think, I think too... Like, A, don't judge, but B, like, there's also some part of me that's like, this is kind of goofy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, like let's furries. Just, let's lighten up. Yeah, yeah, Like, yeah. there's something, like, can we have a laugh? Like, everyone takes sex so fucking seriously. I know, I know, And it, I know. It, 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 like, sort of like a guy fucking a bag full of mayonnaise, like, it just screams out, like, 
this is kind of silly, guys. Yeah. Like, let's just be a little bit more gentle about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in the sense of humor. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Because he was deeply ashamed of that. And I could understand why, because I have shame about certain things. Um, Shame runs a lot of my thinking, but I don't know. I just, in my own personal life and people I know are into some really weird shit. And... See, I'm ashamed because I'm too normcore. I'm like, God, I'm so boring. People have that too, though. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I gotta, I gotta spice it up. Like, I, I talked about it in writing, and I don't know if it's true, but like, you know, I, I knew I never wanted to have children, and so, the, you know, the old Oxford Dictionary of definition of perversion meant any sex that was non-procreational. So, if you don't want to have children, by nature, everything you're doing is is perverse, like. You know, the etymology of the word perverse means to turn away from. So for me, it's like I've turned away from what is the real function of sexual intercourse. So I think that if you're aware that you don't want children and you already have some kind of like kinky wiring, your sexuality can become really intellectualized. And then in that experience, you can sexualize a lot of things and you can have as much sexual satisfaction from something that's happening in like a virtual space or long distance that doesn't involve nudity that's as satisfying as like having an orgasm and for some people it's just hard to wrap their heads around it once again it just comes back down to like this impulse human beings tend to have around uh definitions yeah exactly and labels and like putting everything in its place yeah and like trying to organize our reality so it makes sense to them right yeah but it's like this is I think the maybe the overarching theme of this conversation is that like we know very little. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. let's let's be humble. I know less than you probably. <laughs> I, don't yeah. know, man. I don't know. No, <laughs> you seem like you know quite a bit. But sex is so expansive, you know, like it's so broad and there's so much that falls under the umbrella of what can be sexual and like that really interests me is to see okay, can we sexualize this thing that we're doing right now? Like there's a lot of ways to kind of like be sexual that to other people wouldn't seem as satisfying as sex, but to me they are. And they're just, you know, I have all my clothes on. Maybe the the person I'm with is even in the same city as me, but we're doing things that to me are really sexual. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's tricky. It was like a subject I was nervous to write about, but at the same time I didn't want to censor myself or, or do the thing of like sex isn't part of life. I'm going to leave that part out because it's, it is it's a huge part of life. It's a huge part of life. Like everybody likes to fuck, you know, maybe save some people who don't, but well, here's a question I have. Like I think about this cause I have kids and I'm yeah. like, well, do you, at some point you're going to have to talk to them about it. My worst nightmare about having kids. <laughs> yeah. But I think, I guess the question that I have is, uh, sex for fun sex for the mere pleasure of it with yeah. just some partner who's kind of a random yeah i've done person that. Yeah. yeah i think a lot of people have yeah i think like i think it's like have fun having if i'm giving advice i'm like have fun enjoy it enjoy yeah. your body but do it with somebody that you really care about yeah exactly because otherwise it's it leads to suffering it does yeah am i missing something no cuz i don't want to be true. like i don't want to be uh like a party pooper. <laughs> no, no, I think that's true. And I think that in my experience, like, cause yeah, I would be with, with women that were the counter to what I needed. 
and we would have, you know, intense sexual experiences for like a month or a few weeks. But then once like love enters into it and atypical sexuality, it becomes like really, really different. Like it feels almost sacred and religious to me in some way. Um, I find it really hard in terms of language to get a lot of these ideas across. Well, that's the project, right? That's why you're writing books. Yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> you know? I know. And like an auspicious debut. I hope or so. Or I guess like follow-up to your debut. Yeah, I mean, I didn't even think of the first book as a book. Um, but I guess it was. Well. But I was very, I, I mean, I still, because it's new to me, I've been just stunned by the response of people. Like the reviews have been overwhelmingly good. That's great. And it just... I'm still having trouble grasping that the book is even a physical object. And now it's out in the world being read. Like, I guess there's like a good bookstore in New York called McNally's. I didn't know about McNally Jackson. Got, yeah. They got stacks of them by the register. And, um, I'm just blown away. Like I get like people writing me on Instagram every day. Like oh, this book is incredible. And to me, I was just, you know, I was confident, but I didn't expect this kind of like overwhelming response to it. Well, you tapped into something. I guess so. So the element of magic to it. Yeah. I was just like, for a collection of short stories, short stories are harder to sell, you know, than novels. And But so far, it's been shockingly well-received. Well, that's awesome. And uh, I'm I'm glad to meet you. I'm glad to meet another Brad. Yeah, good luck with you. Keep, you can do it with Brad. Like you too. Keep, yeah. <laughs> clearly. Yeah. Um, and uh where can people get your art like is it possible to like is it all galleries and like museums like no god no i never did that well well not museums i was uh, i kind of like there's two paths which is to go into the artist run like museum world but i was always in the kind of like commercial gallery world where i was like move product and you know but legitimate like in, in galleries with integrity but i don't really have much in like museum collections um yet yeah, yeah, I have a few pieces, but right now I'm not working with any galleries that I would consider competent enough to contact. So I think if anybody's interested, just contact me. Yeah. Yeah. But I have this phobia about my email. So I haven't checked my Gmail account since October. Yeah, I know. We were going back and forth, like in yeah. all these different convoluted ways. <laughs> yeah. So I started another like weird Antifa, like encrypted email. What, the Proton Mail? Yeah. I'm, I'm kind of down with that too. I mean, I, I don't cool. use it, but I want it. I'm like, it's I, great. Yeah. So now I just added, like, I open my Gmail and I put my hand over the inbox so I can't see it. Uh -huh. And then I created like a vacation response that just says, if you're emailing me here, it's very unlikely I will read your email or reply to it. Good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so I said the best way is that if it's literary related, contact Tyrant Books. If it's art related, contact uh, Harper Levine, this dealer. If it's personal and you really need to talk to me, use this other email, this Proton Mail account. But for the most part, you know, I'm not very easy to get in touch with. Like I don't have a telephone. Um, good for you i know i love it no wonder you seem so like deeply sane <laughs> i know right i have an ipod which is like you know that's why i'm on instagram i just need to use wi-fi someone else's wi-fi but uh i still read books on the subway and i and i and it's also that i'm an, like i'm an addict and i know if i had an iphone i'd be on it on yeah. the subway yeah i don't want that 
You Plus, know. it's just like not good for you. It's not good for you. No, I mean, in small doses, fine, but nobody's doing that shit in small doses. It's defined. It's 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 designed to be addictive, right? Necessarily, you know, right? So, yeah, it's hard to get a hold of me. Ironically, the best way is through Instagram. Okay, because I will check my DMs usually, because it might be something interesting. I'm going to write you a DM on Instagram. I'm not on Instagram, but I'm going to join and just be like, you saved my life. <laughs> well, some crazy ass shit. Somebody, some woman found my home address three years ago and sent me all of her high school diaries and then wrote me later and asked for them back. But I was like, hey, they're in a dumpster. See, like, you are boring. striking a chord. I know, but it's creepy at times. It really unnerves yeah, yeah. me. I bet. Me and my wife went to a show to see this band, Cindy Lee, in Toronto. We were sitting on the floor, and this younger woman came up to us, and she said, it's you. And we were like, yeah. And she started to cry, and then she ran out of the space. Huh. And stuff like that is kind of creepy. Yeah. And people are very obsessed with their marriage, too. And we're having this two-person show tomorrow, which is like, I don't know how many married couples have done a two-person show, and the show is about marriage. But... uh well, yeah. see, so you're sort of inviting people's like a fantasies and yeah. interest. I mean, you know, that's the hard part about art and sharing art publicly and working from a place that's like even semi-autobiographical. Yeah. Like inevitably there's going to be that projection yeah. and that curiosity. It's yeah. just part of the, it's part of the package. It's true. It's true. But I'd rather people not get a hold of me, to be honest. Well, I think it's... Not such a bad approach. <laughs> no, it's not helpful. <laughs> well, listen, uh, thank you so much for coming over and talking to me. Congratulations on the book. Thank and, you, Brad uh, Listy. All the creative projects you have going. Thank you. Follow the middle path. Don't stray. <laughs> all right, there you go. That's Brad Phillips. His book is called Essays and Fictions, available now from Tyrant Books. Essays and fictions go get your copy right now immediately if you want to find uh, brad phillips on the internet his twitter handle is at brad underscore underscore phillips there's two underscores at brad underscore underscore phillips his website is bradphillips.ca he's canadian essays and fictions available now from tyrant books Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. If you would like to support the show, if you listen regularly and you want to support the show, it does make a difference. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. There is a free Other People app. Did you know that? This podcast has its own official app. It's the I think it's the easiest way to keep track of the show, to listen. Go get the app. It's free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. So that was a good one, right? I remember, like, right after Brad left, like, he got into his Uber and uh, drove away. And I was like, damn. What just happened to me? I love it when that's the case. You have one of these conversations and it feels like you went on some sort of ride. <laughs>